You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. In this podcast series, we bring international affairs expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. My name is Cheney Kuroniotis, and I handle communications here at FSI. I'm here today with Carl Eikenberry, who retired from the U.S. Army as a lieutenant general and served as the U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan from 2009 to 2011. He's now the Oxenberg Rowland Fellow at FSI's Shorenstein Asia Pacific Research Center and leads its U.S. Asia Security Initiative. Ambassador Eikenberry is part of two scholarly groups who've recently released sets of policy recommendations addressing U.S.-Asia relations. One is our own APARC, and the other is the Task Force on U.S.-China Policy, organized by the Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations. Ambassador Eikenberry's contributions focused on security policy towards China, and that's what we'll talk about today. So, Ambassador, to get us started, what was the impetus for developing and releasing these reports? Why does U.S. policy towards China need to be reassessed right now? Well, our policy towards uh, China, uh, towards uh, modern China, it uh, dates back to the late 1970s and early 1980s. And there was an assumption that has been shared by administrations that go as far back as the Nixon administration or Ford and Carter administrations up through the 21st century that our policy with China should be driven by the aim of having China more integrated into the world economic order, a liberal trading system, open access, and that with that integration would come not only a more prosperous China, but then there would be social and political evolutions that would occur in the country over time. So the political science theory that with increasing wealth, a middle class emerges, middle class then puts demands on the center for uh, more uh, property rights, for more legal rights, for more inclusion within the political process. And that driving, uh, that is what drove our policies over the uh, decades. But I think that uh, beginning in the late 1990s, certainly in early in the 21st centuries, that uh, the uh, proposition that what would uh, follow from economic growth in terms of political changes, that that increasingly became, uh, came into a question. And this is important because there's the uh, notion by many in political science, international relations, that as a government becomes more pluralistic and more open and moves more towards a democracy, albeit in this case with the Chinese characteristics, that Uh, differences in international relation competition would be much easier to manage. That's the uh, theory of the case, that democracies tend to be able to negotiate their way through problems and autocratic systems opposed to uh, democracies then tend to have more conflict and can go to war. So by the, um, uh, I think that over the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a growing doubt within the 
internet within our own foreign policy community and our international security community as to whether those assumptions that we had underpinning our China policy uh, are correct or not. And we look at China over the past 10 years, that's become not only much more assertive in terms of its foreign policy, especially on the maritime domain, and it's become increasingly uh, more of a mercantilist, uh, uh, nationalistic uh, economic policy that it's in pursuit of. But we've seen that politically the country has become uh, more closed and has become more autocratic. And so with that, I think that there's many that have worked on China issues over the last 20 to 30 years, which I have a question now as to whether, let's call it the engagement strategy, which has been pursued on a bipartisan basis with China for many years, uh, whether or not that was uh, working. And uh, if it was not, where was it failing? And where should course corrections uh, be made in our policy? So the question is whether our longstanding policies and relationships are still enough to hold us away from conflict, military conflict, or whether we need to reassess uh, that posture and take different steps. Yes, we have a China which is now uh, continues to uh, rapidly merge on the uh, global stage. Uh, it's gone from an economy that perhaps when the opening of China and our engagement strategy with that country began in the early 1980s, a country whose uh, GDP was maybe the 10th largest in the world. And as most know, it's now the second largest GDP in the world. And it's possible that over the next five years to 10 years, it will become the largest GDP in the world. Uh, militarily, the same phenomena that in the early 1990s maybe the 10th uh, largest uh, defense budget in the world, and now it's the uh, second largest behind the United States. So as those trends continue, then of course we have to start to uh, look more carefully at Chinese strategic intentions and to try to divine whether or not uh, the old assumptions about uh, political evolutions in China, Chinese strategic intentions, whether those still obtain in the uh, in China as it is today. So what are some of the challenges that China poses to U.S. defense planners and military strategists? I think, Cheney, the, uh, there's several challenges that the United States uh, faces in, in uh, thinking through our defense planning uh, with respect to uh, China. The first is something that we already talked about. And when defense planners uh, plan for particular scenarios, they plan uh, against uh, particular countries, they have to think through the set of capabilities that that country may have. Not next year, defense planning is long-term business. You're thinking the next 10 to 15 to 20 years, because in order for you, for a particular country, for the United States to develop capabilities that can meet a potential threat 15 to 20 years from now, we have to start doing that planning now. 
you can't develop a weapons system in one year. These are long-term investments. So when we think about China then, as we think about any major power in the world, our time horizon has to be 10, 15 to 20 years out. And in that next 10 to 15 to 20 years for China, what will be its economic growth trajectory? What will be the develop, uh, continuing development of its uh, military and its modernization programs? What are your assumptions about the United States over the next 10 to 15 to 20 years? To illustrate, uh, China's economic growth over the past several decades was double digit. Those days are long gone. We don't know, though, will China reasonably be able to sustain a 5% economic growth, a 4% economic growth? How about our country? Are we going to go at 1%? Well, if China goes at 4 to 5% and we go to 1% and stay at 1%, then there, 20 years from now, China will have amassed a considerable amount more power. And then we don't know the China of 15 to 20 years from now, will it be ever more autocratic? Will it be even a more brittle uh, political system, which sustains and gains legitimacy from its people by pressing and pushing forward a very aggressive nationalist line. That's a China, more rapid growth than ours, uh, continuing to be very autocratic, even more assertive. That's a China that requires one kind of defense response from the United States, a China that slows down or a China which becomes more open and I think easier for uh, the United States and our allies to work with, that requires a very different response. But no one has the crystal ball to say 15 years from now, here's how China is going to look, here's how the United States is going to look. And that then leads defense planners, I expect in China as well, to do worse casing. And you end up with the security dilemma and defense planners doing their job saying that we need to worst case this, so we need to do more in order to hedge our bets. Is the U.S. government good at that sort of 15 to 20 year planning? You know, we've heard, I think, complaints in the, in the past that um, the way our democracy is set up, it's extremely responsive to short-term needs and concerns. Do we struggle with this sort of uh, long-term planning? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, in the case of China, we've really not had to uh, uh, struggle at all because we've maintained a degree of military superiority uh, that has not made this an important question when we get to the question of defense planning. Uh, and I think there's an active debate right now within our national security community about how do we look at China in terms of our international security strategy. And there's an active debate out there with some arguing, I think with more arguing, that we do need to make modifications to our defense posture and our military planning in order to adequately hedge against a possible threat from China to our own interest in the Asia Pacific region. Now, uh, if there is not that consensus then, Cheney, your point about the difficulty in our system of sustaining policies uh, beyond a four-year period or beyond an eight-year presidential administration, that becomes a, a, a very critical consideration and become a limiting factor. On the other hand, 
during the Cold War era where there was a clear consensus about our defense policy vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union, it was sustained on a bipartisan basis. Here I want to be clear, I'm not at all comparing uh, where we are with China right now to where we were against the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union represented an existential threat to the United States, our allies, and our value system. Certainly we're nowhere near that uh, stage with China right now. But important will be for the emergence of a clear consensus within our foreign policy community on a bipartisan basis about how do we look at China, what are our assumptions, and where is the agreement about what is the appropriate defense and military response, as well as a whole of government response. So we've talked a bit about uh, China's recent history and what we might uh, need to think of how it looks for the future. Uh, what are some of the short and long-term, I'll say, concerns rather than threats um, that China could pose to U.S. security interests? What do we worry about today and what do we worry about 15 or 20 years from now? Well, let's start with the, uh, the longer term, uh, again, with the caveat that there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty that goes into the long-term planning because we can't see the future of China and uh, our own future is one when we talk about uh, economic growth and our ability to sustain defense spendings. We have uncertainty ourselves here. All of that said, I think that the, the worst case scenarios for the United States would be uh, a China that on its maritime frontier, uh, that is the East China Sea and especially in the South China Sea, denied freedom of military navigation to the United States and to our allies or sought to uh, do that. A second would be that with the growth of uh, Chinese uh, power and influence, uh, if we were unable to find a inclusive open security architecture in the Asia Pacific region, and it became a zero-sum game, an effort by China to break us away from our allies and disrupt then our forward presence and uh, influence in the Western Pacific uh, region. A final one would be that uh, China, with its rapid economic growth and investing ever, much, ever more into research and development, could it become a peer competitor of the United States in domains that are absolutely crucial for the United States with our current military doctrine to maintain military superior, superiority over the rest? Here would be, uh, I'd be talking about the cyberspace or space domain, the maritime domain, uh, Chinese uh, advancement in uh, robotics. Could uh, China uh, reach a stage of development in where it would erode our superiority in these areas and then uh, threaten our conventional deterrence. The more immediate concerns that we have with China are here and now every day. So the possibility of having a accident between our military forces or those of our close allies uh, in the uh, Western Pacific. And this has occurred in the uh, past where uh, you'll recall in the year 2001, early in the Bush II administration, we had a Chinese naval jet fighter that collided with one of our reconnaissance aircrafts 
and caused a very serious diplomatic incident as that reconnaissance aircraft then uh, was forced to land at Hainan Island, part of the PRC, and we had a very intense diplomatic negotiations reaching crisis proportions till the Chinese finally agreed to release the crew. Our military forces, uh, that is uh, the United States and China, they're operating Cheney in close proximity in the maritime domain every day. So we have naval vessels, we have uh, underwater and on the surface, we've got aircraft that are in the Western Pacific and the Chinese will come out to monitor those activities and sometimes to a challenge. So we're one accident or miscalculation away from another diplomatic crisis, or even worse, that uh, should there be an accident and the other side respond then tactically with uh, force or firing upon then the other side, that could quickly escalate into a very dangerous situation. So that's uh, something that we live with uh, as well. I think there's concern that China, based upon its behavior over the last five years, might continue to push to expand its claims within the South China Sea and could announce an exclusion zone, uh, perhaps another air defense identification zone. As several years ago, it announced over the East China Sea and and Japanese uh, administratively controlled islands of the Senkaku. If it were to do that over the South China Sea, that could cause uh, uh, severe tensions. Will it continue its island building program in the South China Sea, very much against the finding of an international uh, tribunal in The Hague last year? Uh, These are all uh, uh, significant uh, threats that could uh, suddenly occur and we could wake up tomorrow morning and find ourselves in a real crisis with China. There's several more that I would add to this list. One would be that if there should be a crisis on the Korean Peninsula, uh, say a North Korean uh, provocative action, conventional provocative action in the West Sea or along the militarized zone, or some definitive test of nuclear capability that would pose then a uh, question for the White House or for a challenge to the White House, where now unequivocally the North Koreans have demonstrated an ability to put a miniaturized warhead on a long-range missile that could strike the United States. How would President Trump deal with this? Well, there's the possibility in one of these crises that Chinese interest would diverge from United States and Republic of Korea interest and we could find ourselves in a crisis as well with Beijing in which our view was that a strong response, including potentially military options was required and China then opposing the use of military response by the United States and our Korean ally. And then last would be indications that uh, China is continuing to aggressively use its cyber attack capabilities in ways that we would deem as seriously or further undermining U.S. national security by attacks uh, on our defense systems or probing of our defense systems 
or hacks that would lead to the release of critical of information critical to our national security. So having gone through some of the more dire scenarios, let's talk a little bit about what we might do to prevent those things from occurring. And the reports that uh, you participated in, you made recommendations for U.S. defense strategy and policy towards China in a few different areas. So let's start with a force posture and doctrine. So what should we be doing along those lines to help keep things steady? Well, the United States uh, uh, has to think hardest, of course, and it does, about the most likely military contingencies in the Western Pacific. And those military contingencies with respect to China are primarily in the maritime domain. They're in the East China Sea with Chinese aggression against our Japanese allies uh, with respect to Chinese claims over, as the Japanese call it, the Senkaku, or the Chinese claim, uh, say, the Diaoyu Islands. Uh, another set of maritime issues is in the South China Sea, where China uh, is among several claimants for uh, control of islands and atolls and sea space in the South China Sea. And uh, should it take aggressive action in the South China Sea, or threaten the U.S. Uh, uh, freedom of military navigation through the South China Sea, the United States would look at that as a threat to a vital interest and would take some kind of uh, response. The third possibility is a conflict over Taiwan, where the United States, uh, with our Taiwan Relations Act, has a spe special security relationship with Taiwan and looks at the uh, interest of maintaining peace on both sides of the Taiwan Strait as another vital national interest. So with the growth of Chinese uh, military power over the uh, last several decades, the United States uh, has finds itself increasingly challenged to deal with these scenarios. We still enjoy vast military superiority, but because of the distance involved for the United States, a long distance from our West Coast to the South China Sea, for, the China, for China, a much shorter distance. So we have the tyranny of distance working against the United States as Chinese capabilities increase. Chinese staying power in the South China Sea or in the East China Sea because it's close to its bases and now it's even building bases in the South China Sea. It has an advantage there as well. And for the United States, then, what are the platforms, so to speak, that we can plan on using should there be a conflict in the Western Pacific? For us, uh, we get there with aircraft carriers, but we land base as well out of Japan. Is there the potential and scenarios of land basing out of the Philippines? As we look at Chinese capabilities that are growing, especially their long-range strike missile capabilities, even aircraft uh, strike capabilities, for the United States, then, it becomes important to be able to diversify our basing. So we need to keep a forward military presence because we need to be able to respond quickly. We need to have early warning. But we need also to be able to, when our forces then move into the area and for our forces that are already there, we have to be able to disperse. If we're only in one or two or three locations, then that becomes relatively easy for any side to a target. So what does that lead to then? It leads to 
a emphasis on the need for uh, resilience for your forces and you achieve resilience by being able to absorb, as we say, the first strike. And those forces then can be resilient by being based at different locations to be dispersed. But they also can be uh, need to be resilient in terms of if another country goes after some of our defense infrastructure, like our space-based systems, which are critical for navigation, which are crit critical for communications, if they go after those systems, our forces have to be resilient enough that we can function for a period of time without those enablers, which adds more than deterrence, because if you create one single point of vulnerability, the other side can go after that point of vulnerability with the hope then of being able to control escalation and bring the other side quickly to the negotiating table. So for the credibility of our deterrence, we need resilience of our forces, we need the ability to disperse. And then the last point would be that we also need to have a set of capabilities within our force structure that allow American forces to counter against an enemies, or if we're talking about a China scenario, to be able to effectively counter their own offensive strike capabilities. In other words, that if your uh, force is configured in a way in terms of the weapons that it has and its doctrine, that the only way to then respond to an attack is to strike the homeland of the opposing side, that is dramatically force escalatory. So uh, if China has expeditionary forces of its own that are away from its own homeland and the United States has the ability to counter against those expeditionary forces without actually imposing uh, strikes on the mainland itself, that uh, is I think a far more credible response and is far less escalatory. And let's talk for a moment about alliances. Who are our most reliable allies in the region and who should we be cultivating stronger relationships with? Well, our allies uh, in the region, uh, we still have a, a strong alliance network. As you're aware, unlike Europe, which we have the NATO multinational alliance in the Asia Pacific region as a result of uh, history and legacy, we have a set of bilateral alliances. So bilateral alliances with Japan, with Korea, uh, with the Republic of the Philippines, with Australia, and with Thailand. Our uh, alliances that we have today with Japan and with uh, Korea and within Australia, I don't think they've ever been in greater shape, albeit there's uncertainty in the Asia-Pacific region right now about the direction of President Trump's policies. Uh, President Trump has uh, said that all of our allies need to uh, be doing more in terms of defense spending and burden sharing. And certainly in the case of Japan and Korea, there's more that can be done. But I'm confident that uh, at the end with President Trump, Defense Secretary Mattis, that those uh, alliances will remain strong. More problematic recently has been our alliance with the Republic of the Philippines, with President Duterte, uh, signs of uh, wanting to distance himself more from the United States. 
but I think that the uh, political culture and the strategic culture of the Philippines at the end of the day will keep that alliance with us strong. And then our alliance with Thailand challenged as it has been with the uh, military coup that took place there and some distancing between ourselves and Bangkok politically and put some strains on the military alliance. But we also have a set of uh, good partners throughout the Asia Pacific region that includes Singapore, where we have a special uh, defense relationship with, and we are ever increasing our military ties with uh, India. These alliances and the management of them become very important because one, as we look at the uh, rise of Chinese power, the United States alone uh, trying to uh, deal with this and contend with this, given that the United States is a global power and we have interest in Europe, we've got interest in the Middle East. So it's not that 100% of our power is applied to the Western Pacific, whereas China has an asymmetry of interest with the United States, much more of its power uh, can be used in the Western Pacific. That's for now their, uh, their vital interest. They still are not a global power. That's where they're putting their priority. So the United States then can clearly use the support of allies and allies can use our support in trying to deal with this very uncertain and increasingly assertive China. And not only on a bilateral basis, but uh, what we've encouraged in uh, our task force report on U.S. policy towards China, and then I noted in my contribution to the APARC report, I think that the United States is also well served to continue as it has been encouraging security partnerships or security relationships between other sets of actors and nation states in South uh, Asia and in East Asia, uh, not necessarily with the United States at the center of these. So as an example, uh, contacts uh, and uh, military cooperation between Australia, Japan, and India, or perhaps between uh, Japan, Vietnam, and uh, Australia. These two are very important, I think, in developing a comprehensive response to China on the security front, because uh, China looks at its own actions and it knows that if it pushes too hard, that it risks then uh, balancing of East Asian, South Asian states against them. And it doesn't want to then unwittingly be the force that ends up containing itself. And it's trying to seek that, uh, uh, seek that policy balance where instead of creating a uh, coalition against it, it's trying to find a way to move forward slowly and have bandwagoning to, on its side. So this idea then of creating networks and denser networks of partners and uh, countries favorably disposed that work among themselves I think also sends the right signal to the region about the need to cooperate and collaborate when it talks about how to respond to China's growing assertiveness. But it also sends a very clear signal to uh, Beijing as well that this is not a problem 
uh, that is restricted to the United States and China, or that China's problems with international security uh, strategy and the way it proceeds in the Western Pacific is not limited to the United States, and the United States is not the reason that countries are pushing back. But when they see collaboration and cooperation between other networks, the signal is clear to Beijing's leadership that the uh, problem resides in Beijing. Okay, and uh, the final question for today, let's talk about U.S.-China military relations and your recommendations there. Is it possible for our militaries to work together to strengthen diplomatic ties? It is. I think that uh, there's uh, much that our militaries do right now uh, that we should even do more of, and maybe some things that uh, we do that we shouldn't do. Uh, what should we be doing? What are we doing and should be doing more of? Our militaries should continue to meet uh, regularly on an institutionalized basis to talk about crises avoidance and crises management. How do militaries operate in proximity so they operate safely? And uh, if there should be an accident then that occurs, how do we immediately establish communications to avoid escalation? Here I'd say from my knowledge of the development of the People's Liberation Army, talking to some of our people in uniform that work with the Chinese Navy and the Air Force, they'll say over the last decade that the growth of professionalism within the Chinese Navy and Air Force has been extraordinary. And so we're finding Chinese military operators who are uh, keen to follow international rules, who uh, understand the consequences of a mistake, not only for their own crews, but for their nations. And so, uh, as uh, I understand it, our dialogues with the Chinese military between our navies, air forces, and our Department of Defense and Ministry of Defense, that they've become more robust over the years and there's been improvements. We also need to have sustained dialogues with the Chinese military about our strategies and our doctrines, because it's only through understanding strategies and doctrines then that we can do a better job of divining the intent of the other side. You know, we can count capability, we can count hardware and get a sense of capabilities, but uh, the idea of a contender or a threat is based, you assess that not only based upon the capabilities, but what's the intention of the other side. So continuing to have dialogues on military strategy and doctrine does give you some insights into intentions. So when you see moves by one side, if you better understand their doctrine, the other side says that this is not threatening. You've convinced that yes, according to their military doctrine, their strategy, what they're doing is perfectly understandable and it's not at all threatening. Those are useful dialogues. Where I'd say that uh, we should be cautious about our military-to-military -military dialogues is in terms of expectations. The idea is uh, uh, sometimes given that if uh, militaries can just sit down and uh, uh, find ways to understand each other and to get along on a personal basis, that that uh, can be very important contribution to finding a way for peace between the uh, two countries. Militaries at the end of the day uh, their job is to go out and be able to deter, and if deterrence fails, to execute the war plans that their political authorities and their people entrust to them. And so militaries have a role 
I think, in uh, helping with diplomacy, but they should never be put in a position to a lead because, very frankly, a military's job is to keep the powder dry and be ready to go off and uh, execute. All right. Well, a very illuminating picture of the situation for us right now. So, Ambassador Carl Eikenberry, thank you again for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Jenny. Thanks for listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Follow us on Twitter at FSI Stanford or visit our website at fsi.stanford.edu for more events and expertise from the world of international studies.